Be seated. Make your way, if you will, to Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35. God is steadfastly loyal. He never betrays His people in any sense of the word, ever. If you are a child of God through faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ, you can rest assured that God will never forget you. He will never forsake you. And no thing and no one will ever steal away or diminish His faithful love for you. At all times, Without exception, God is absolutely loyal to His people. But will you agree with me? We are not always loyal to Him, are we? We find it very tempting to flirt with other gods. We love the Lord our God, we worship Him, we honor Him, but our loyalty to Him falters. We flirt with other gods and sometimes we sleep with them. Adulteresses, James writes. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Clearly God is not only absolutely loyal to us, but He calls us to prove absolutely loyal to Him. And when our faith wanders, when our love and appreciation for Him wanders, He is willing to even call us adulteresses. In fact, in the very first commandment that he issued to Israel, God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol. You shall not bow down to idols or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Deuteronomy 5, 7-9. Why is God jealous? Is that even right? Why is he anxiously jealous that we prove loyal to him? Is God insecure? Is he petty? Is he too small to handle our little betrayals? Is he just a bean counter? I give you this much loyalty, you ought to give me this this much loyalty in, in return. Or does God have some sinister plan to gain power by demanding undivided loyalty from people? Is it a sign of weakness? Does it reveal a sinister plot when a steadfastly loyal husband does not want his wife to commit adultery with another man? I don't think so. I think such a man's desire for his wife's loyalty is simply a natural aspect of his loyalty for her. It is precisely because he is loyal to his wife that he longs for her loyalty to him. He knows this will be for her ultimate good. He knows that it is only morally fitting for her to benefit fully from his loyalty if she returns that loyalty to him. He knows that any man who would come in and ruin what he, her true husband, is giving her would be a man that would eventually hurt her very deeply indeed. In like manner, God is jealous for your loyalty. 
Because He knows that He is your true husband if you're a believer in Him. He alone is your God. He alone is your soul's joy. And so He demands our absolute loyalty. This means that every false God who competes for our loyalty will prove destructive and hurtful if we yield. And so God, who is absolutely loyal to us, calls for our absolute loyalty to Him. There are no other gods. And therefore we're called to abandon every false god and to worship God and God alone forever. You've gathered in this assembly this morning because you desire to honor and worship God, I trust. Maybe some, you'd say that's not the case. But I trust that, that most of us, if not all of us, are here saying, I want to honor God. That's why I've come. I've come to worship Him this morning. But does He have your undivided loyalty? That is the question. As we continue to trace the steps of Jacob along his journey of faith, we come this morning to the 35th chapter of the book of Genesis. You remember chapter 34, the debacle at Shechem. Shechemites offer to join cultures and to intermarry with Jacob's clan. Jacob seems to lean even toward agreement in chapter 34. It is a call, it is really a satanic plot ultimately, but a call from the world to join God's people and for God's people to join the world. And we know who always wins in that combination. It is the world that always wins the day. But what did God do? He providentially protected Jacob and his family from that intermarriage, from that cultural genocide that was offered there by the unbelieving Shechemites. It happened in a very unusual way. There's a rape. There's a rape that followed by that proposal of marriage led Simeon and Levi, two of the sons of Jacob, to take the lives of the men of Shechem, of that city. Strange circumstances for God to preserve His people, but He uses the sin of people to accomplish his will. In retribution for the rape of their sister Dinah, Simeon and Levi kill the inhabitants of Shechem and the deal's off. God preserves his people. But the crown jewel of the believer's holiness, as much as is said in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, about the dangers of intermarriage of God's people with the world's people, as much as is said there, the crown jewel of the believer's holiness in this world is not marriage. Marriage within the believing community, as important as that is. The crown jewel of holiness is worship. You remember last week with Solomon. I think we could prove it just there in his life. You remember what was said about Solomon. He married many wives. But what was the conclusion of that? It was wrong for Solomon to do that. First of all, to marry a second wife was really ultimately wrong for him. But it was wrong for him to marry pagan wives. But where, what is the conclusion of the matter there in, in 2 Kings, in 1 Kings? The conclusion of the matter is this. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. They led his heart away from God. Above all else, God calls us to have a loyal heart that worships Him and Him alone. That is the crown jewel of holiness. A distinctive worship 
that praises the Lord alone, that gives our lives to Him alone. And it is to this joy that God is steering Jacob's faith as we come to Genesis 35. Sometime after the slaughter of the Shechemites, we read here in 35, verse 1, Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. God calls Jacob here to Bethel. You remember in chapter 34, God's influence is far below the surface. There's no mention of God in chapter 34. He works providentially, below the surface as it were, by means of the sins of Simeon and Levi, by means of the Shechemites. He is working, he is ever there behind the scenes, but God does not appear in chapter 34, not to the naked eye. And even in Jacob's family, God is minimized in chapter 34. We see little of God. All that we see, it seems, is a folly and deceit and murder and bickering. God's moving. He's working. He's leading. He's keeping His people providentially from joining the world. But by contrast, as we come to chapter 35, it is as if the clouds break and the sun shines through and God is here and He's everywhere in chapter 35. He figures very prominently into this this text that's before us today. And it's very important for us to understand that Jacob's story is winding to a close. He's an old man by the time we come here. Not so much in terms of his day, but over a hundred years of age as we come to this chapter His life is winding down to a close. He'll play a secondary role in the narrative concerning Joseph. But we enter here upon the concluding chapter of his life. We won't look at it all today, but we're coming to the end of Jacob's journey. And here at the end of his journey, there's a call to Bethel. Well, over 30 years have passed since Jacob first encountered God here. Remember chapter 28 then that immersion in Haran, now he is called back again to Bethel. He has fulfilled his vow to make God his God. Look at chapter 33 and verse 20. In 33 and verse 20, there he set up, and that's at Shechem, he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. God is his God. We do not... No, but we assume that he also fulfilled that vow to pay a tenth of his income to God that he made earlier as a younger man at Bethel in his first journey through there. But whatever the case, we notice how this call strikes Jacob here. Whether he kept all of his vows at Bethel, we see how this call back to Bethel influences Jacob. He clearly reads it as a call to come home to God. He reads it as a call to exclusive worship of the Lord. Notice verse 2. God has called him in verse 1 to Bethel to return to that place where he had made that earlier vow. And though he's kept it to a degree, he needs to get back there. God calls him there. Now verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out. Let's notice these verses just carefully again, verses 2 through 4. 
in verse 2. Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. A threefold call here from Jacob to his family. And it is not without significance that chapter 34 ends with Jacob's sons giving him instructions and dictating the terms for the family. In all of chapter 34, Jacob comes across as weak and indecisive. But we encounter a very different Jacob here. As his life winds down, he stands forward and declares himself and said, we will worship God and God alone. Put away the foreign idols, first of all. Get rid of these gods. Where did they come from? We don't entirely know. These might be partly Laban's gods. Remember that Rachel had stolen from Laban. We can just imagine it'd be a the stuff for a novel to find, to write about the day that Jacob realized that what he had said to Laban was all wrong and that those gods really had been in his camp. But it appears that he's done nothing to remove them. They're a reminder of his own failure. They're a reminder of Laban. And there is a false worship that's developing within his own home, but he does nothing to remove those idols. Perhaps there were some images of gods or possibly even icons on earrings we'll see here later that were taken from the Shechemites when the Israelites plundered that town in that horrible scene in chapter 34. We don't know necessarily where these gods came from, how these idols were brought into the family, but we have here the chosen people of God. Think about that. The chosen people of God. The blessed people, the holy people, flirting with and committing adultery with other gods. The scene marks a huge development in Jacob's faith. He actively and aggressively issues a call to exclusive worship. He has battled with God in prayer at Peniel. He's wrestled out of God a blessing. But Shechem showed us that Jacob's faith was by no means complete, but here we find him wrestling also with man. His wrestling with man has always been destructive and hurtful to him and to others. But here he wrestles with his own family and says, we have got to come to terms with who we are. And we have got to come to terms with God. Get rid of these false gods. Put them away. This is huge for Jacob. This is a major development in his faith. This is a step forward as he rebukes his own family. Get rid of the foreign gods. And certainly calls to us fathers and husbands that this is one of our duties before the Lord. To exercise in our family a leadership that calls for an exclusive worship of God. Does your family know that you worship God and God alone? And do you take the leadership that is necessary to establish that worship in your home? Now our idols these days aren't typically put on a shelf. Sometimes they are, but not typically. The idols with which we deal are things that are very different than this day, than Jacob's day, but they're nonetheless idols. There's the idolatry of things such as television and money. There's the idolatry of such things as sports and hobbies and vacations and entertainment. There's that idol of coziness that seems to plague us here in the Midwest for Something has something to do with the temperature in the winters, I think, sometimes. But sometimes there's just an idolatry to want to be isolated and alone and quiet that leads us to deny God. There's an idolatry of selfishness 
and idolatry of food. There are all kinds of idols. They don't line up neatly on a shelf for us as Americans in our world, but they're idols that tear at our heart. There are things that draw us away from God. There are things that cause us to compromise our fidelity and our loyalty to Him. And this nation and this church and God's people need fathers and husbands to stand up and say, it's enough. We need to orient our life in a distinctive and holy pattern that says that we belong to God and God alone. Put away the foreign idols, Jacob says to his family. Secondly, purify yourselves. This was probably a ritual bath, expressing a sense of moral preparation for meeting God at Bethel. It's very interesting here that Moses records this statement. These laws, we don't know if they were established verbally by God through vision and through dream, but certainly they're codified in the Mosaic law, these purifying baths, these rituals that would say that we are pure before God. He says, we are going to Bethel, we are going to meet God, put away the, uh, the foreign gods and bathe yourselves to prepare. Thirdly, change your clothes. This is another act of ritual preparation for meeting of God. We find this same idea so often, the putting off of the common clothes, the putting off of the daily old clothes, and the putting on of something fresh and new to prepare ourselves physically and thereby psychologically to come into the presence of God and to meet with Him. And it is, I suppose, an act that's really reflected in our own assemblies on the Lord's Day as we come, and doesn't matter what you come and what you wear as far as we're concerned to those who are invited here and welcomed here, but generally speaking, there is a cleansing of the body, there is a putting on of distinctive and new clothes, and there is a desire to stand before the Lord and to worship Him uniquely. That same concept, and I, I'm not saying that that's proclaimed here necessarily in that text, but that concept survives when we come to meet God, there's a putting on of unique clothes. When something important takes place in our life, we put on fresh clothes and we say this day matters. That's what Jacob is saying here to his family. Verse 3, to go on, then come and let us go to Bethel where I will build an altar to God. Jacob seems to grow almost nostalgic here in the second part of verse 3. He answered me in the day of my distress. He's been with me wherever I have gone. This is a different Jacob. This is a Jacob that looks back and says, I see the hand of God in my life. I see His blessing upon me. When he first left Bethel, the jury was out about God. I'll make you my God if you bring me back here, he said. But here he says, I have seen God's hand in my life. He grows almost nostalgic. He recalls four decades earlier, nearly four decades earlier, and willingly acknowledges Bethel was a turning point for him. He acknowledges that God has been loyal to him. God has fulfilled his promises to Jacob and had in fact journeyed with him and protected him to this very point in time. Have you ever had a Bethel? Have you ever had a moment with God where you talked with him? Where you prayed a prayer? Where you made a turn in your life? Maybe you've forgotten about that turn. It's been a long time. Jacob remembers. Jacob comes home in his heart to what really matters. 
So in verse 4, there's a response to what Jacob has said. And this is an exciting verse. They gave Jacob all the foreign gods. Rachel doesn't sit on them this time. She doesn't hide them. She doesn't pretend that they're not there. She turns them over and all who are with her as they hand over their foreign gods. And the rings that are in their ears, again, probably some type of uh, amulet that hung from the ear, stamped with an icon of some god, again, very possibly gained from the Shechemites or probably almost anywhere in the land of Canaan for sale. They turn these earrings over. They turn these idols over. And what do they do with them? They bury them under the oak tree that is there. This is not a usual word, a Hebrew word for buried. The idea is not here to bury a treasure that you go and dig up later. The Hebrew word that's used, we might say almost dumped here. This is a trash heap. This is a place of burial, of refuse, so to speak. And oak trees were commonly used in that day as markers for important events. It's likely then that these idols and these earrings were buried under this tree as a type of memorial to their abandonment by Israel. That having been accomplished, it was time now to move to Bethel. The whole company to pack up and take off. But with what Jacob's sons have done, what's going on here? Remember what they just did. They just wiped out a small city. The men in that city at Shechem. And any movement now by Jacob's people is going to be viewed as a potential act of war. The word gets around as to what this group has done. Now they're on the move and they're coming toward our place. It's time for a preemptive strike. So we would put Israel here in a very dangerous situation as they move this 30-mile trek upward in terrain toward Bethel. We read in verse 5, however, God is again seen. Then they set out and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. In 3430, Jacob was very much afraid of the Canaanites. But now his nose pointed toward Bethel, he journeys with courage. It is the Canaanites who fear him. So the 30-mile trek south and 1,000-foot climb upward in elevation is completed in safety. And here again at this unique place, Jacob worships, verse 7. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. When the Hebrews named something, they did so for a specific reason. Apparently, Jacob wants to do more than simply revisit Bethel. This visit is to be marked as a significant event in its own right, and so he, in a sense, renames it El Bethel. God house of God, the God of the house of God, Bethel, Beth, Beth being house, the Hebrew word for house, and El, the word for God. This is God, the God of the house of God. He wants to draw attention here to his understanding of the Lord. What was his emphasis in chapter 28 at his first visit there? His emphasis, if you'll remember, that repeated word in the Hebrew is place. God is in this place. He came to the place. And God was in the place, and he named the place the house of God. But here the emphasis is not so much on the place. The emphasis is on the God of the place. This is the house of God, but I worship here the God of the house of God. He'd finally come home. And he builds here another altar 
to worship the Lord. A distinctive altar from the nations and from the pagans around in the city, the thriving city of Luz. But he builds his own altar and another altar. A significant act. Jacob has finally come home. He will fulfill his vow at Bethel, purified of the pagan gods that had corrupted his family, and purified of the divided loyalties that caused him so much fear and heartache in the past. God was his God, and Bethel brought his journey full circle. This is a new Jacob. This is a new day. And it gives us courage to know we can grow in the faith. Well, there is inserted here in the text of verse 8 a very strange death notice. Because you'll see at verse 9, Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again, blessed him. We're right back into the same idea of God speaking to Jacob and God working with Jacob. But we have here at verse 8 this death notice. How does that fit? Verse 8, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel, so it was named Alan Bakuth. That is the oak of weeping. This verse seems to be seriously misplaced, and believe me, the critics have a heyday on this. But I think it's inserted here actually for a very wise reason, a very clever reason on the part of Moses as he writes out this account. I think for at least two reasons we find this death notice here. First of all, it provides a literary divide in the narrative. It serves almost like a curtain closing between acts in a play or between scenes in a play. It provides this literary divide. What do we have in verses 1 through 7? We have Jacob returning to Bethel and worshiping God. In verses 9 through 15, we have God speaking to Jacob, apparently at Bethel. The first emphasizes his return of faith. The second is going to emphasize God's continued loyalty to his people. And here the curtain between is a death notice. It's not the first one and not the last one here as we close out Jacob's life. There will be a repetition of death notices as Isaac's generation comes to a close and Jacob's generation takes a step forward into the lives of his sons. Many other reasons here I think that this would make for a very interesting inclusion. This last section of Jacob's life brings to our memory once again also the fact that Rebekah's death is not mentioned anywhere in the text. Remember, Rebekah is the one who worked with her son Jacob to deceive Isaac and to send Jacob on forward to Haran and to Laban. But Rebekah's death is never recorded. The fact that her nurse's death is recorded, probably at about 180 years of age here, the lifespan being uh, considerably longer at this period of time. But Deborah dies here, and it would indicate that Rebekah had died before Jacob was ever able to see her again. In a sense, Deborah becomes his mother as he buries her and remembers his mother. It's possible even that Deborah cared for Jacob in his childhood, being his mother's uh, personal servant and nurse. We don't know all of these details. What we do know is just what is here. Since oaks were often designated as shrines of sorts, and since this burial place was named Oak of Weeping, it appears that Deborah was highly esteemed in Isaac's clan and perhaps even by Jacob himself. We don't know if she joined Jacob's clan here somewhere in the land or if he simply discovers her burial place or if word has been passed some other way. Much that we don't know, but this is just a curtain. 
It's just the curtain dividing these scenes in this play. But it is a death notice that will begin to be, will be repeated here below. We won't get to that today, but there will be other death notices that transition out of Isaac's generation into Jacob's and on into the sons of Jacob. We come then to the second major scene here in this play, and that is at verse 9, where God reiterates the blessing, and we have the renewal of the covenant to Jacob here in these words of God to him. Verse 9, after Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob, your name will be Israel. And, and I like to emphasize there the L at the end, it's Israel. Just like it, as, as it is Bethel, it is Panai El. Your name is Israel. At El, the word for one of the words names for God. So he named him Israel. God reiterates the blessing there in verse 9. Apparently, this vision took place at this second visit here in Bethel. In fact, what God says here is so similar to what he said the first time that some people believe it's just two accounts two recollections of the same account, but I think that honoring the biblical text, we notice here in verse 9 the word again. God appeared to him again. This is a second event. At least again after Peniel, if not after the first visit at Bethel. In verse 10 we read here that God names him again Israel. He already names him this at Peniel, chapter 32 and verse 28. Remember the wrestling at night. And at the end, God names him Israel. But here there's a renaming of the previous renaming, so to speak, a revisiting of that renaming, probably to emphasize the fact that Jacob is a new man. He has been cleansed of his deceitful ways, and he has recently cleansed his family of their false idols. He is Israel. Verse 11, And God said to him, I am God Almighty. The Hebrew word is El Shaddai. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you and I will give this land to your descendants after you. If, if you've been working your way through this book of Genesis, these two verses make absolute sense, don't they? What are the two promises that we have here? Over and over again in the life of Abraham, and again, repeated with Isaac, we have here now a second repetition to Jacob of two promises. What are they? The land and the offspring, right? We, we, I see some of your, your lips moving. It's just, it just comes so naturally to us. We see again this promise over and over. God is loyal to His people. He's faithful to his promises. He promised Abraham an offspring and a land. He promises Isaac an offspring and a land. And he promises Jacob an offspring and a land. And he promises you and me to never leave us or forsake us. And to provide for us a home in heaven where the faith becomes sight and where he rewards those who have diligently sought him. God never changes his promises he's faithful to them and he's faithful here to those promises as he has chosen jacob who has not deserved his choice but who has finally at the end of his life here come to a place of unique 
holy worship and faith in God. And the Lord repeats His promises here. Be fruitful, He says, verse 11. Repeating that general blessing upon humanity in chapter 1 and verse 28 when God created the world. But that general blessing on mankind is epitomized in the experiences of God's covenant chosen nation Israel and here in the life of Jacob. Be fruitful, Jacob. A nation will come from you and kings will come from your body. Kings. There's a cryptic prophecy here pointing to the son of Jacob who would lead in the blessing of the nations. More on that later. It's very interesting how Moses begins to work there. Of Abraham's sons, who was it? Isaac or Ishmael? It was Isaac by the choice of God. Of the sons of Isaac, who was it? Jacob or Esau? It was Jacob by the choice of God. Who will it now be of the sons of Joseph or of Jacob? <laughs> These J names, oh, I wrecked that, didn't I? <laughs> Who will it be? Will it be Simeon and Levi? We X'd them off last week, didn't we? We're going to X off Reuben, the one it would, be in t it would seem to be next week, Lord willing, as we look at that passage. Who will it be? Emerging from this will be Joseph, and emerging from this will be Judah. Kings will come from you. Let me just show you then a parallel here between what we find in this blessing to Jacob and Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. If you would read these verses in connection with chapter 17, we see here a literary linkage. That is, Moses, the author, could write this any way that he chose to write this. We say that, of course, understanding the part of divine inspiration. But what does, how does divine inspiration lead him to write this down? He draws these connections again back to Abraham. There's this linkage in the promise to Abraham. And we notice many unique links. In both of these accounts, as God appears to these patriarchs, the text itself starts with this phrase that God appears. And God speaks. And then... In both accounts, God reveals His name as El Shaddai. In both accounts, there is a name change from Abram to Abraham, from Jacob to Israel. There is in both accounts a promise of a great offspring, including this unique reference to kings. There will be kings that will come from you. That tips us off as to where the text is headed as to where God's plan of redemption is headed, it will ultimately head through a son of Jacob by the name of Judah, which will, end, will, will go through and pass through then a man by the name of David, and ultimately a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Judah, kings. And there is also there, not only of the offspring, which will bring forth nations and kings, but there is a promise of the land of Canaan to both. And both of these texts then end with the phrase that God goes up from the patriarch to whom he is revealing these truths. These aren't accidental parallels. This is a means by which 
The author of the book of Genesis is saying to us, here again are the promises of God. Here is the chosen line. Here are the promised people. And here is the signpost to Messiah, Jesus Christ. He's coming. It will take many, many generations and centuries, but He's coming. Thank you. What this all points to is the unique grace of God. Despite all of his failures, Jacob did belong to God. He was the son of promise. He had been chosen by the Lord. And such assurances remain the domain of those who worship God with loyalty in spirit and in truth. And that is where this account ends in verses 14 and 15. With Jacob worshiping the Lord, Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. As he had done in 2818, Jacob again anoints a memorial pillar But this Jacob is a different man than the younger version. The younger Jacob had not yet embraced God as his God. He was very aware of the reality of God, naming this place the house of God. But he had no sense of personal loyalty to the Lord. Now many years later, Jacob has come to realize God's loyal and steadfast love for him. And this Jacob stands before God, having rid his clan of false gods and prepared to worship God and God alone. It's been a long, hard journey for Jacob. There have been some very painful lessons along the way. There will be more to follow. But the man who wrestled with God and gained a blessing at Peniel shows his true colors here. The man who returned to Bethel was now at long last a loyal worshiper of the Lord. And the question today for us, so many centuries, millennia removed, The question today remains the very same for us. While we look somewhat differently, we certainly dress differently, we certainly live in a different world, but we worship the same God, and He's not changed at all. And the question that remains for us is, are we loyal followers of Jesus Christ? Now, Old Testament Israel's problem at certain periods in their life was that they abandoned the worship of God completely. But that was not the common problem. The common problem in Israel was that that the people of God worshipped God and they worshipped idols. They worshipped both. God is jealous for the affection of His people. Not because there's anything missing in Him, but because the worship of any other God indicates that something is missing in us. Are you flirting with other gods? Are you committing spiritual adultery? Is there a lack of loyalty in your heart to the Lord? You love God. You worship Him. You honor Him. But your loyalty to Him falters. It flags. Is there a Bethel in it here for you? A return to the Lord? A return to the God of your fathers? Or perhaps somewhat uniquely from Jacob, maybe your situation resembles more the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2, and it's time to return to your first love. Jacob's love was developing through this entire stretch. Sometimes our love for God flags in a different manner. The idols of today 
as I mentioned, will not sit on a shelf, probably. But they are the idols of this world and its system. And this system invites you to join it and in the process to lay your God on the shelf. To set Him aside, at least while you're with them. And to pick Him up when you're alone and on your own and doing your own thing. Today we struggle with the idols of worldliness, of money, of retirement dreams, of recreation and entertainment. We struggle with the idolatry of children. We fall before the idols of worldly philosophy and false doctrines. But as in Jacob's day, God calls us to have no other gods. We're not to be double-minded and plagued with divided loyalties. We are to worship God and God alone forever. And we will do just that in heaven. If you belong to the Lord, it makes no sense to worship another God. Do you possess a loyal heart of worship today? Are there idols that need to be buried? Do you need to revisit your Bethel? May each of us search our hearts and nurture within our hearts a loyal devotion to God that worships Him and Him alone. Perhaps for you this morning, you have not worshipped God ever with genuine loyalty. You know about God. You're interested enough in Him to come to this assembly here today. But pouring your heart and devotion out in worship of Him, it's never happened for you. The thought of Him walking in the door and you falling on your face before Him in homage, you couldn't find yourself doing that. God might be okay, might be great, might be powerful, but an object of devotion and love, it doesn't ring true with you. Let me just say to you, but the reason that you think that is because you're holding on to idols that are taking you to hell. They're taking you, that is, to an eternity apart from God. We worship God or we worship idols. Sometimes we may do both, but in the end, God would bring us back to Bethel to abandon the idols of this world. And if you have a desire to follow God, a desire to truly and genuinely worship Him, I would encourage you to seek Him. You'll find Him. To search His truth. To talk to someone who maybe can point you to the pages of Scripture where that truth is revealed. And to find out why it is a joy to worship God and God alone. It is. And there are people who can tell you that there's nothing wrong in it and only good and joy in it. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. 
May that be the spirit that pervades in our assembly here this morning as we dedicate ourselves in prayer. Let's bow.